Well, hello everyone and welcome to this month's issue of Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine. So when you hear is Sonia and of course Wendy. And in this issue, as you guys probably know from Critical Decisions, we're going to be talking about two lessons. And the lessons are always pretty awesome. They cover the bread and butter of emergency medicine and also cutting edge topics. It includes topics from the EM model, which is, of course, what our residents learn from and what we need to review as I'm getting close to research time. That is true. We are getting closer and closer each day. So definitely something they got to know. And the great thing about these lessons is that they talk about the critical decisions that you need to address when you're caring for a patient. They don't talk about the nitty gritty details that are great to understand when you're, you know, hanging out at home and trying to learn more, but what do you need to think of when you are seeing those patients in your emergency department? Quick, to the point information. And not only is it the lessons, there's also a ton of other information in there. There's a critical EKG, critical image, the critical procedure, and Wendy's favorite part of the entire issue. You guys should know by now that LLSA review. And we're gonna take you through all of these today. Obviously, we're gonna to try to kind of touch on the basic highlights because there is no way that we can cover every single thing in this issue or any issue just in a short podcast. So definitely, if you have a moment, take some time to go through the actual issue. For our first lesson of the day, it is called counterattack non-ST segment elevation acute coronary syndrome. Thank you to Dr. Carlos Velasco, Dr. Samuel Lee, and Dr. Alvin Chandra for writing this article. If we kind of try to go back to the basics, when we think of ACS or acute coronary syndrome, we think of it as STEMI or an ST elevation MI, a non-ST elevation MI, an unstable angina. And it can kind of like get a little confusing. So an ST elevation is kind of obvious. You have an ST elevation on your EKG. But how about the NSTEMI and unstable angina chunk of things? Well, what made it even more confusing for me is that now it's kind of sort of lumped together in this category of non-ST segment elevation ACS. What? Yeah, exactly. When did they change that? Apparently in 2014. I missed the memo. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what, what exactly are we looking at these days? I think it's just that, as you were alluding to, it's sometimes hard to differentiate these patients when they have a non-ST elevation MI with a troponin elevation or unstable angina, which can also have a troponin elevation. And so kind of categorizing these people together, ST segment elevation versus those don't have ST segment elevation, I think is just a easier way to think about it. Got it. So what you're saying is that sometimes people come in with concerning stories, vague EKG changes, you still don't even have a troponin when they present, and you're trying to figure out where they fit in, and now we just put them all in one category and make it kind of easier to address. Yeah. Got it. So it sounds like the first question we've got to ask ourselves when we see a patient is say, hey, do they need cath or not? Obviously, when they have an ST elevation MI and all the equivalents of that, then they go to the cath lab. Otherwise, it's conservative until things change. As you were saying before... The patient's coming with a good story. What's a good story? Well, there's the classic teachings in terms of an exertional component to their chest pain or diaphoresis, or maybe they describe it as very similar to their prior MI. But interestingly, radiation to the right arm or even both arms and shoulders have a higher likelihood than these other descriptors that we just talked about. All right, so not the left arm, but the right arm or both arms. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. How about things that make it less likely to be NMI? Well, then these are the descriptions of pleuritic chest pains, positional, sharp, or reproducible. But we always have to remember that 
we can't just dismiss these patients based on potentially atypical or nonspecific symptoms since in our elderly population... Thank you, Andy. Thank you. <laughs> or a diabetic or our female populations, these people can present with more atypical symptoms. All right. All these factors make it either more or less likely to have an MI or that these symptoms are due to an MI, but they don't make it zero or absolutely not likely. Definitely in a person who has a concerning risk factors and other things are concerning, you definitely got to think of that. Exactly. So that's why when anybody comes in and says, okay, I have chest pain, Everyone should get an EKG within 10 minutes, right? Yes. Why? Well, we want to capture the STEMIs, really, that's what it is. But also, the other EKG changes, really what we want to figure out is, are they potentially dynamic changes associated with ischemia? All right. And is the EKG 100% sensitive for ACS? Well, the article actually mentions that an EKG is really only 20 to 60% sensitive in detecting ACS. That's quite dumbfounding. And that is a, kind of scary, actually. That's right. Um, <laughs> I was trying to tone it down. No, no, it's scary. It's really scary, Wendy. So um, I think that this is definitely a reason for us to get a little bit better at reading EKGs and trying to detect subtle signs of ACS and EKGs, which is why we talk about critical EKGs exactly. in every single issue. So back to our topic of NSTEMIs. We talked about history, how it can be helpful. We talked about EKGs that are helpful and Obviously, you have to always repeat an EKG. I always say that you have to talk yourself out of the repeat EKG rather than talk yourself into it. Unless someone has a stone-cold normal EKG in a very low-risk story, then you got to repeat it. So how about the biomarkers, like the troponins and things like that? How sensitive are they in trying to figure out this whole NSTEMI business? Well, the current assays that we use for troponins are more helpful when they're repeated, even though they're quite sensitive. But we probably have heard a lot in the news as well as the current research that people are looking into using high-sensitivity troponins to help us in chest pain evaluations because they actually can detect 10 to 100 times lower concentrations of troponin leaks and has a negative predictive value greater than 95% for excluding MI. Wow. So basically you're saying that when we are doing our serial troponins, we're able to detect even that really minimal rise in the troponin and pick up on those patients. Yeah, exactly. That so sounds awesome. Sounds like some good things are coming down the road. Yep, just more more and more tests. Um, so something we've talked actually about before in this podcast is the heart score, and that's something that we actually use very frequently in our shop. So let's let's go through that kind of like as a reminder for ourselves and for our listeners. Yeah, the heart score was really developed specifically for us emergency physicians because it's used to evaluate undifferentiated chest pain as opposed to other risk stratification scores that was really trying to figure out in a subgroup of patients who has known ACS. And so that obviously like doesn't Like the apply. Timmy score and all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I always thought it was weird. Like before the heart score, people are going like, what's their Timmy? And I'm like, but isn't Timmy supposed to be for people we know are having like ACS? But anyhow, so heart score, just to go through it real quick, H is history, E is EKG, A is H, R is risk factors, and then T is troponin. And for anyone who has a smartphone, you can always do it on your MD Calc app or Google it, um, and that just makes it a lot easier. And I'm sure that, you know, if you see as much chest pain as we do, then you're going to get, you're going to memorize it in a heartbeat, I guess. Heartbeat. Do you see that? <laughs> Right. 
And so we can use it to evaluate patients with undifferentiated chest pain in deciding their risk stratification, really their risk of an adverse, major adverse cardiac event. And so the studies that looked at the heart score found that more than a third of patients are actually low risk by this risk stratification. And so you can really reduce the amount of testing you do in them and arrange really, you know, safe discharge. Got it. So low risk, low heart score, home, they don't need to be admitted for provocative testing. Exactly. So let's say that we decided this person is not going home and they need to stay and we're worried that they are having an NSTEMI or an unstable angina. Well, they're not going to immediately go to the cath lab the way STEMIs do. What do we do with them? Well, you're going to do a lot of the things that you're familiar with. You're going to stabilize them if they have hemodynamic kind of abnormalities. Mostly, we're going to be focusing on relieving their ischemic pain. We're going to also do some risk stratification to help us figure out, you know, how urgently, emergently they need some sort of intervention to treat their condition. Got it. And Mona is long gone, correct? Yeah. So sad. Now it's just nah. (laughs) (laughs) Nah. (laughs) So no more morphine, no more oxygen if someone is not hypoxic. All we do is nitro and aspirin. And then any other antiplatelets that we got to give with NSTEMI or unstable angina? Right. I think this is in conjunction and discussion with your cardiologist, but adding clopidogrel or ticagrelor can actually really improve their outcomes. And then also consider anticoagulation, whether it's with unfractionated heparin or a low molecular weight heparin. So what this article does not get into the details of is the number needed to treat, number needed to harm for NSTEMIs and unstable anginas. And I'm sure our listeners don't want to hear me rant about my feelings with anticoagulation with NSTEMIs and unstable angina, but you can hit pause and I can rant to you, Wendy. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, if a person is intermediate or high risk, then at that point, as you had alluded to before, then they may need something more invasive. That's correct. Great. Well, thank you, Wendy, for taking us through this article, and thank you again to the authors for taking the time to write it. Just to kind of summarize, what the big things to remember is that unstable angina and NSTEMI are kind of combined because they're difficult to differentiate. And I think that that way, instead of trying to figure out which is which, just keep in mind that it's just ACS and keep going. We talked about things that increase the likelihood that this chest pain is actually um, ACS. And the big, big thing is radiation to the right or both arms. There's a bunch of things that make it less likely to be ACS, but not makes it zero at all likely. So things like pleuritic chest pain, positional pain, and reproducible pain, we got to get EKGs, but those are not even 100% sensitive. And keep in mind that you can use the heart score in patients that are low risk to try to figure out who's low risk enough that they don't need provocative testing immediately in the hospital. That's right. I was listening to you, Andy, because it's fun. <laughs> so for our next topic, it is the critical EKG. And in this EKG, there is an irregularly irregular tachydysrhythmia. What we usually think of with irregularly irregular tachydysrhythmia are one of three things, right? It's either a fib or flutter with variable block or MIT. So how do you differentiate the three? Well, you got to look for distinct atrial activity. Look for your P waves. All right. So if you have no P waves, that's fib. And if you have P waves that are changing morphologies, then that's MAT. And then when they look exactly the same and they're like kind of sawtooth, that's when you think of flutter. That's right. All right. Well, that's a good reminder. This is a pretty cool EKG if you want to take a look at it. 
All right, and for this month's critical procedure, it's actually talking about laryngospasm management, which I think is quite useful in the ED since we might be using things like ketamine or patients might present with uh, toxic inhalations or maybe they have pre-existing asthma. Maybe somebody's gonna have a laryngospasm in front of you and you can fix it without needing to paralyze them or intubate them. How are you supposed to fix laryngospasm? Well, good question, Danya. <laughs> <laughs> there is a laryngospasm notch that you can apply pressure to. Where? Behind the earlobe. What? Yeah, take a look at this uh, diagram, our listeners. The technique describes the laryngospasm notch located behind the lobules of the pinnas, just as anterior to the mastoid process. So that uh-huh. little divot. You know, like yeah. before? Yeah. All right. So you're supposed to apply inward and anterior pressure. Significant pressure. It's supposed to be painful. Okay. I mean, I'm assuming if someone's laryngospasming, their their perception of pain is a little less than you and I at this moment. Because I'm trying to push in and it is not comfortable. So when someone is having laryngospasm, we're saying we need to push in there inwards and anteriorly. And hopefully if their laryngospasm relieves itself, then you don't need to do other techniques. Right. It, it kind of describes it also while you're doing a jaw thrust. So I think I would just maybe apply my hands at this spot as well as at the mandibular angle. Maybe that will both help. Okay. All right. So it's a super excited jaw thrust. Yeah, exactly. All right. Great. But obviously have other equipment available if you need to apply yeah. assisted ventilation. Yeah, so if we're talking about laryngospasm from ketamine, definitely need to have benzos on board. Make sure that you have, you know, your paralytics, your other sedatives. Be ready to intubate if you can't actually go right. through this. Yeah. Worth All a right. shot. Definitely, if you're saving someone an intubation, that's definitely worth a shot. I actually read a tweet today. I can't remember who, um, who tweeted it, but someone was like, what's better than um, high-fiving someone after a successful intubation is high-fiving someone because you avoided an intubation. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I thought that, that was That can really be cool. like a new award in the ED. I, th- I don't think anybody wants to give you that award. But it should be. I agree. We'll call it the 1D. That's it. We're done. I'm wor- you know what? I'm going to go to a shift after this. I am going to work on this. Okay. We're going to create a 1D. <laughs> so, so there's also the critical image. And in this particular image, they actually discuss a picture of a left ventricular pseudoaneurysm. And in this case, what happens is a 70-year-old man comes in with bleeding from his chest wall, and he just had like a chronic wound and nothing else that's super exciting. And of course, he came in very critically ill, and then his CT actually shows a soft tissue mass that's adjacent to his heart. However, in all reality, they couldn't really see that line between the ventricular wall and that quote-unquote mass. And then with contrast injected into the heart, as in, you know, with a CTA, then they were able to actually tell that it was that ventricular wall actually aneurysmed and connected with... Wendy's facial expressions are amazing right now. It actually connected with the chest wall and that leaking wound was a ventricular aneurysm that was like a ventricular fistula, if you may. Right. (laughs) It just sounds scary. I wonder if like this wound was pulsatile because it certainly sounds like it should be. 
I think if it were to the point where it's pulsatile, I do not think that this individual would have made it to the OR, as this case concludes. That's true. I hope that he did well. Um, and this does sound very scary, so be respectful of chest wall wounds, I guess. Yes. And that's definitely one of the things you got to think of as a pseudoaneurysm. And next up is Wendy's super favorite part, because not only is it the LSA review, but it is also about... Nuance seizures. Exactly. I am telling... I, you know what, Wendy? It is unbelievable. I don't know what magic you have, but every time you have all of your neuro stuff and the critical decisions. I mean... Usually it's in the drug box and tox box, but every now and then we get an article about it too. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) So this particular article is about new-onset seizures. So what is it that they talk about? Well, it talks about really the workup of new-onset seizures in terms of you might consider neuroimaging if patients have neurological deficits, prolonged ultramental status, recent trauma, prolonged headache, uh, and that MRIs are more sensitive than CTs if you're trying to decide between one of them. I think a question that always comes up is whether or not people need to be started on a seizure medicine, and really it quotes that two-thirds of patients really don't need emergent treatment, and it really doesn't actually also affect their long-term prognosis, which is cool. I think the part that was my biggest takeaway is that we have to remember to counsel our patients on activities that, if they were to have a recurrent seizure, could be detrimental, whether or not they're swimming taking baths, operating heavy machinery, or driving. Definitely something worth remembering because we don't tend to think of that. You're absolutely right. We sit there and we think, well, do we need to CT them? Do we need to LP them? Do we need to do all these things? But then, oh, they're fine. They're being discharged. And that kind of, I I think, falls through the cracks a little more often than it should. So thank you for that awesome reminder. For our second lesson, winter wipeout about skiing and snowboarding injuries. And thank you to Dr. Catherine Dolbeck for writing this article. Um, It is a very timely topic since I am freezing right at this moment, even as I'm speaking to you. And this article reminded me exactly of why I don't ski. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, Wendy, but I actually tried to ski like years and years ago. And um, I decided to do indoor skiing. So I was actually in Dubai, as you have probably heard, (laughs) right? There's like, they have like an indoor skiing ramp, which is really cool. And of course, who else could get injured on an indoor skiing ramp? But me. And my injury mechanism was pretty interesting. I slammed into the wall. There are usually no walls in regular skiing. <laughs> so technically, if you were on an actual mountain in the outdoors, you may not have injured yourself. Well, I mean, I could have fallen off the cliff part, but I probably would have still injured myself. I think this is a really good story comparing your and my personality. Because <laughs> I've only done snow sports once, snowboarding. And the whole time I wanted to sit on the board and slide down the hill. (laughs) Which is why exactly the only thing I do now is tubing. I like that. Because you sit comfortably in a tube when you're cold. But, you know. Hopefully, can I wear a helmet when I tube? I mean, you can do whatever you want. Can I be there to take pictures? Sure, I don't care. (laughs) The safest snow tuber ever. (laughs) Well, we are high risk, Wendy, because according to the article, those at greatest risk are those below 20 age of 20, and we're a little more mature than that, and those above the age of 40, which neither of us is there yet. So in all reality, Wendy, this is our window. We should be doing, like, ski sports right now, right at this moment. Okay. Because we're at the lowest risk possible. Okay, I'll go get my helmet right away. (laughs) (laughs) 
So speaking of how like snowboarding and snow skiing are a little different, with skiers, they usually injure their lower body, but with snowboarders, they actually usually injure their upper body. So that's different. And then question for you, what do you think? Splenic injuries, they're rare in both categories, but is it worse in skiers or snowboarders? Snowboarders? That is absolutely true, which is exactly why you are probably right sitting on the board. Exactly. And one more trivia is what is the most common cause of death after ski injuries? Not an avalanche? (laughs) (laughs) No, not an avalanche. Yeah. Oh, I shouldn't speak TPI with such enthusiasm, <laughs> but thank you for giving me that trivia question. You're welcome, Wendy. So we're going to be talking about a bunch of injury. All right. So we're going to talk about a number of injuries, and let's start with the most common one, knee injuries. So knee injuries are usually um, an injury of the MCL or ACL with or without meniscal tears. And the article talks about how these injuries actually occur. There's a lot of pretty pictures in there to kind of explain the mechanisms that these happen. I'm sure that if someone squeezes on a regular basis, they can totally identify with that. Um, at one part, they actually talk about something called a phantom foot, where you kind of are in the middle of doing whatever it is that you're doing while you're skiing, and you don't really realize where your foot is, and you step on the ski, and there's like a very interesting um, photo in there, and end up injuring your ACL. And in patients who come in, just like good old knee exams, you've got to do a, you know, thorough exam. So if you're concerned about um, an ACL tear, you definitely got to do a Lachman test. So do you remember the Lachman test, Wendy? No. I'm assuming you don't do it on your neuro patients. No. <laughs> you can do the Lachman test, which is where you hold the knee, um, flex it like a 20 or 30 degree angle, and hold the femur with one hand, and apply some stress on the lower part of the leg, basically pull it towards you. And the big thing to remember with that is that people have different um, laxities of their joints, so it may be helpful for you to actually try the other joint as well and kind of compare sides. And that's going to be a theme that's going to pop up in our upcoming conversation. Okay. Um, The other thing that you got to do to also check the ligaments is to do some varus and valgus stress when the knee is in full extension. Um, What ends up happening is that with a lot of beginners, they end up tearing their medial cruciate ligament because they keep their feet in the wedge position. I don't know if if you've ever heard people say that, but they say whenever you're skiing, just remember pizza. Pizza? Yeah, like a pizza slice. Like it looks like a wedge. I I just think about the little kids having their skis like... Yeah, that's exactly it. Okay. So the V is a pizza slice. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's... I've never been to ski school. Never learned the lingo. I I don't think it's ski school. I think that's exactly why I injured myself. (laughs) The person teaching me was calling it pizza. (laughs) So anyway, you get, because you keep your leg in that position, as you can imagine, like in that wedge position, you end up with a medial cruciate ligament from that. Got it. Okay. And something to remember is that when trying to differentiate between a ligamentous injury and meniscal tears... If the swelling happens immediately after the injury, then it's most likely to be a ligamentous tear. And if it is a delayed swelling, then it's most likely to be a meniscal tear, which is what I actually ended up having. You did? All right. Well, I would have thought that with all the weight you're putting on your knee joint, people get meniscus injuries. So you can get meniscal injuries associated with your ligamentous tears as well. Um, And then the other thing that can happen is that you can have the meniscal tear when you injure your lateral cruciate ligament or your LCL um, because of like the shearing mechanism of the knee. 
And the way you diagnose that is with a McMurray test. And a McMurray test is when you hold the femur and you hold the leg and actually apply varus and valgus stress to it and try to hear that click when you're actually stressing the meniscus. Got it. Okay. All right. So if you're suspicious for any of these injuries, what do we do? Get some x-rays? Well, absolutely. Um, you should always get x-rays. There's a couple of fractures you got to think of. A second fracture is something that you got to look for and it can be easily missed. It is the avulsion of the anterior lateral ligament of the knee, and it happens when you have an ACL or a medial meniscal tear. So you can see that tiny little avulsion that can be a little hint that there's a ligamentous injury. The other thing is that you can have a reverse second fracture where it is kind of the same thing, but the avulsion is on the medial side of your table plateau. And at that point, you would think that the person has a PCL or MCL or a medial meniscal tear. Um, Something else to keep in mind is that Tibial plateau fractures can be missed on an x-ray, especially in this day and age where we don't look at x-rays all the time. Let's be real. When you don't work in a community hospital, you don't tend to look at your own x-rays and you may start losing that skill. So if you have any clinical suspicion and you're actually reading your own x-rays or the patient just doesn't look right, definitely consider a CT because a non-displaced tibial plateau fracture can totally be missed on an x-ray. I see. All right. And then we put them in a neobombalizer. So that's what I thought before reading this um, article. I used to think that, you know what, if anybody has anything wrong with their knee, if they have like, what do they call it, internal derangement of the knee. I see the tentacle. And you're just like, I don't even know what that means. So I used to think that everybody should get a knee immobilizer, but what this article talks about is that you should not actually do that. If you can walk around on your knee, then you should let people be without a knee immobilizer because it actually worsens their healing because they end up with stiffness of their joints. There are, of course, some exceptions to this rule. If you're concerned about a quadricep or a patellar tendon rupture, if a person has a displaced tibial plateau fracture, if someone has a tibial spine avulsion fracture, if they have a patellar fracture or dislocation, and of course, if you're concerned about an actual knee dislocation, those are the people that, one, should definitely be a knee immobilizer, and two, all of these people are going to need emergent or urgent orthopedic intervention. So those are your patients that you definitely want to connect to the orthopedist with and make sure that they have um, quick follow-up. I see. All right. Now, the next group of injuries I actually never thought of because obviously I'm not a skier, thumb injuries. So there used to be this injury that we talked about for board review, skier's thumb. Do you remember it? Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, so this is exactly what it's from. So it happens when you're holding the ski poles in your hands, and what happens is that you have a lot of that lateral stress on your thumb, you end up with an ulnar collateral ligamentous sprain. There's a pretty picture in the article where you are holding um, the thumb and you're putting in some valgus stress on the MCP while it is extended and then again when it is 30 degree flexed and then you compare it to the other side. If you have a lot of laxity in one side in comparison to the other, then you should be concerned about the ligamentous sprain and place them into a thumb spike up. I see. Of course, if somebody comes in with a lot of pain in that area, you got to think of other differentials, right? Like a Bennett fracture, a Rolando fracture, a scaphoid fracture as well, which we know is something that can be easily missed. So they have stuff block tenderness or tenderness on axial loading of the scaphoid. You definitely want to put them in a thumb spike as well if you can't see anything on the x-ray. All right. What about shoulder injuries? So with shoulder injuries, you should think of like rotator cuff tears, glenohumeral dislocations, 
AC separations and sprains, which are actually the most common injury. So with rotator cuff tears, you've got to think of those in any skier that is older than the age of 40 who presents with a shoulder dislocation. They have a 35% risk of also having a rotator cuff tear with their shoulder dislocation. Um, if somebody is not able to abduct their shoulder with resistance, then you definitely should also be concerned about a rotator cuff tear. The problem, though, is that when patients come in, they're in so much pain and so much spasm that you may not be able to figure that out on their arrival, which is why the diagnosis can actually be delayed and people need to follow up with their primary care provider for possible further imaging and at least a re-exam in a week or so when the spasm has gone down and all that swelling has gone down. And of course, just like with all the joint exams and all the extremity exams, we haven't explicitly said that today yet, but you've got to do a neurovascular exam in all of your injuries to make sure that you are not missing anything. Okay. Well, do we do anything different from a regular shoulder dislocation? Absolutely not. Definitely think of x-rays to make sure that there's no concomitant fracture that would make your reduction challenging. Uh, try to reduce the joint as quickly as possible. The article has a great reminder of the degrees of AC separation that are going to help you figure out how to manage it. And the article reminds us that it may be difficult for us to pick up on AC separation because it may be pretty subtle on x-ray. It could help sometimes to compare it with the other side. So get another x-ray of the other side. It can also help if we do a weighted view. So basically ask the patient to hold 10 to 15 pounds in their affected hand. And then the other one is a cross-body adduction, which is asking the person to put their hand on the affected side on their opposite shoulder. And the idea is that that's going to put their shoulder in a position that's going to allow it to be even more obvious, both clinically for exam and on x-ray. Cool. I like that. Okay, moving back to the lower extremities. What about your ankles? So that is also one of those injuries that is almost exclusive to skiers, which is an injury or a fracture of your talus. What happens is that when you have a lot of axial loading, so if you can imagine, you know, when you're jumping and kind of land on your feet, you have a lot of axial loading, and you can end up with a lot of tenderness on the anterior lateral part of the foot, or even on the lateral malleolus. And it can be confused with a sprain, and actually up to 50% can be missed on the initial x-ray, which is kind of scary. And I mean, I don't tend to look at the talus that closely when I'm looking at foot x-rays, right? Because when we've talked about this actually before in one of our earlier podcasts, I don't like foot x-rays. <laughs> Too many bones. <laughs> yep. So in these patients, if they're having a lot of tenderness, you should have a really low threshold for a CT as not to miss the tailor fracture. All right. Lots of learning points from this article, specifically one, I'm not a skier or a snowboarder, but also a good review of orthopedic exams and injuries. Definitely true. So I learned that, you know, the most common injuries are knee injuries for a lot of these patients. And if you're dealing with a knee injury, um, you can remember that if you have a ligamentous injury, typically you have an immediate effusion, whereas when you have a meniscal injury, you tend to have a delayed effusion. And if the patient can weight bear or ambulate without the need of a knee immobilizer, don't use it because that will help them with early mobilization. There are the indications that we talked about in terms of emergent, urgent orthopedic surgery for knee-associated fractures, injuries. And then also we reviewed how to do the exam checking for ulnar collateral ligament sprains, a good refresher on rotator cuff and shoulder dislocation injuries, and 
if you have a high suspicion, whether like you said, for a tibial plateau fracture or a Taylor injury, get a CT. That is a great review of this article. Thank you so much, Wendy. And thank you again to the authors for taking the time to write this article. For our drug box this month, linazolid. So um, linazolid is something that we're starting to use a lot more often, especially that now it is actually, there's a generic form of it. So the cost has decreased and it's become a lot more accessible to a lot of our patients. And it's a fantastic drug because we can use it for MRSA and VRE. That's right. You do have to worry about adverse drug reactions such as myelosuppression, peripheral and optic neuropathy, but most importantly, serotonin syndrome. And then for drug box, this month we actually talk about ibuprofen and naproxen toxicity. My key take-home point is that really we have to worry about toxic effects when we're dealing with 5 to 10 times the usual therapeutic dose. So it's greater than 400 milligram per kilogram for children or greater than 10 grams for adults. And something that we definitely got to think about is that patients may actually have an element of aseptic meningitis that happens with really large doses. So they can come in with like seizures and so on. So those are things that we got to think about because these are medications that are very accessible and therefore that makes them a concerning risk. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Wendy, for going through this issue with me. As always, it's been fun. I hope that our listeners have enjoyed this as much as we've enjoyed recording it. So please connect with us if you have questions, if you have cases you want to tell us about, or anything else that we can do. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, my Twitter account is at Dania Koja. And mine is at EM underscore NCC. And until next month, bye.